Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. If you got a tummy ache, or you don't feel right, or if you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. I am so grateful to live, work and broadcast to you live on Radio Karam from this very special place. The Bunurong people have continuously occupied and cultivated the Karam Karam swampland for more than 7,000 years, according to local archaeological evidence. The time has well and truly come for us to recognise First Nations people in Australia's constitution. If any questions, comments or curiosities come up for you tonight, please text us in the studio on 0493 213 831. We'd love to have you part of this conversation. For me, as a new radio presenter with only four months on the air under my belt so far, I am incredibly excited to welcome tonight's guest onto the program, one of the co-hosts of The Architects, which ran on Triple R for more than a decade. Dr. Christine Phillips is an Eastern Kulin-based non-Indigenous architect, writer and senior lecturer at RMIT University School of Architecture and Urban Design. She is also a co-leader of the Yulange Willem Lab and is currently working on innovative ways of transforming design education to celebrate the 60,000 plus years of our First Nations culture in Australia. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thank you for having me, Alana. I think we were talking before. We've known each other now for around 11 years, so it's very lovely to be here in the studio with you and thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, so a long way since the old halls of RMIT as a student. indeed, that's right. And uh, I get to enjoy myself asking the questions tonight as well. Uh, The first thing I'm always really curious about is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Well, I think I, I I have a father who enjoyed going around the neighbourhood and looking at buildings and houses that were being constructed. So I haven't got a, a memory of a particular building but rather a memory of being taken to lots of building sites when I was a child and just sort of walking around, probably not allowed to go on these sites but, you know, stepping over half-built walls and enjoying playing around, um, watching these houses being constructed in my local hood. Your dad was a builder? 
No, just he, snuck he on. He was not, but he had an interest in architecture and building. And we ended up moving into a house when I was five that was designed by a fantastic Jewish architect who now runs Monarch Cakes on Ackland Street in St Kilda. So um, it was a fantastic house that was of its time, late 70s, early 80s, sort of brown brick number. Um, And so, yeah, I think that would be my early memories of starting to think about the spaces around me was those unfinished houses in my local neighbourhood. With all the educational guts on display. Yeah, 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 absolutely. why did you decide to become an architect? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I did classical ballet for a number of years and I was, you know, really thinking about would I pursue a career in dance and I think I got to the point of about 15 where I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to cut it as a, as a ballet dancer. Um, and I had an interest, I had a really fantastic art teacher at school who got me quite interested in architecture And I started thinking about that and I also have an older brother who is an architect and he used to help make – he used to ask me to help him with his architecture exams. He studied architecture at Melbourne Uni and they had to memorise a lot of buildings for their end of semester exams and I would sit there and test him and it sort of started to get me intrigued and interested. So I think it was sort of a collation of all of these things from, you know, the memories of being on these construction sites to thinking, okay, I'm not going to cut it as a ballet dancer, interested in art, interested in art theory, thinking about architecture. I did a lot of my school projects on architects um, including Tom Kovac, actually. Oh, really? I, I did my VCE project on Tom Kovac, who's a very well-known, internationally renowned architect based in Melbourne, but he's been all over the world. Um, and I remember being, a, I think it was in year 11 or 12, and knocking on his studio office and having a little chat with him about his work. And he'd done this fantastic fit-out of a shoe store called Suchi, it was very hip of it in its time. It was all very curvy and white and gorgeous and he did a lot of the work and the conceptual development of it on site with the builders so it was very tactile and that got me pretty excited and interested in architecture. Wow. You've been in full-time academia for a, quite a while now. How did that come about yeah, for you? and that was not part of the plan either. I... Got out of architecture school and I went and worked for a sole practitioner, John Briggs, who's a heritage architect. And through that process, uh, I started really, uh, I guess my interest in architecture and history grew. I had to go off and do lots of research through that job. I also worked for a number of large practices, one called Sinclair Knight Mertz, where I worked on education buildings Um, Lots of public buildings such as police stations. I went on to lots of different practices from Lyons to Hassel and I really enjoyed working in practice but at the same time I missed talking about ideas with as I did as a student and I started to teach sessionally at RMIT and 
I began my journey in teaching tutoring in a subject called Australian architecture, which I now coordinate all these many years after. And I also began teaching design studio in the evening. So I'd work in practice during the day. And like many design tutors at RMIT, I'd come in and teach design studio, which is the course, one of the core subjects in the night. And I just thoroughly enjoyed just talking about ideas and the sort of conceptual side of architecture rather than the everyday business of architecture and a position came up and I applied for it and I got it. So that would have been about, say, after about seven years of practice um, and then I enrolled in a PhD. So I was undertaking my PhD at the same time as working part-time as a lecturer at RMIT. And you also did some work with Tanya Davidge. You had a practice called Open House. Yes. Tanya Davidge and I have an interest in uh, communicating architecture to a big, wide audience like yourself, Alana. And we felt that lots of conversations were being had within industry and amongst ourselves as professionals. But we really wanted to get out there and speak to the everyday person about the spaces around us. And so we began a practice which was first called Open House and it's now called Oopla. And through that practice we've done a number of projects which are not about designing and building buildings but rather about exploring architecture and prompting conversations through events through um, exhibitions. Um, We've done a few projects with Open House Melbourne um, and partnered with, you know, people like Vision Australia and run little workshops at the M Pavilion and we're just really excited about architecture and we want everyone else to be as excited about architecture as we are. Yeah, workshop for kids as well, which yeah. is usually not always accessible to to youth no, to participate. That's right. That's something right. that's seen as a highbrow profession. Yes. So at the M Pavilion, I don't know if your listeners know about the M Pavilion, but it's built it's a it's a Melbourne pavilion. It's built on a yearly basis. And they invite a different architect from wherever in the world to come and design this pavilion and they host all sorts of kinds of events and talks there. And so we did a few years where we would ask, invite children to come and do a workshop to design their own uh, pavilion. So we'd have a little conversation, what is a pavilion? It's an open air building. And we'd bring along all sorts of things from pipe cleaners to... um, plasticine and we'd just get really messy and fun and then we'd have some architecture students come along with us and they'd photograph their little models and then we'd do a photo montage of their model on the site of where the M Pavilion is so it looked like their little creation was actually in the site and that would get them super excited as well so that was lots of fun. That's so wonderful. Yeah. I've just remembered that for any Sydney listeners, there's also a program called Architecture for School Kids that Louise O'Brien does. Oh, yeah. And and that's at the um, Sydney Opera House. So you can Google Architecture for School Kids listeners in New South Wales and send your little ones down for that. But, Christine, those workshops to actively engage people, 
back then weren't happening all that often. Now it's super popular yes. and in Melbourne yes. it's, it's really big and especially with active movement and play and in, encountering the city. But you were some of the first people doing it at the time. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't really looked into a history of that but possibly. And we, we started off with an exhibition at Federation Square where we invited architects to design an ad about architecture that would communicate what architecture was about to everyone. And that was inspired by a very well-known architect, Bernard Chumi, and he created these advertisements for architecture back in the 1970s. And so we did that and we held it in a very public space so that we could invite everyone to come and think about what architecture is. And I think there's, you know, the ambition is or the intent was to, I guess, get the message out that architecture is not just about the boutique house. Rich houses for rich people. The rich people who can afford to actually pay for an architect. But actually many of the buildings that we occupy, whether it be a community building like the one we're in at the moment, Alana, or a library or a shopping centre, or all of these buildings are designed by architects, along with road infrastructure. I mean, I just love some of the work of Peter Elliott and Kirsten Thompson that you see in the freeways. So that was the message we wanted to get out there, that to th- for people to actually engage and think about the spaces around them and to understand that architects aren't just about doing beautiful, expensive houses for the rich. Here, here. Yeah. Do you have any favourite stories or a moment from one of those workshops or events that you put on? Well, we did a really interesting one called Urban Tactility, which was based at the um, – where was it now? I'll, that, I'll come back to that um, – where we did a partnership with um, Vision Australia and it was very much about thinking about architecture, how architecture is experienced if you have – low vision or you're blind and we took a prompt from those tactile indicators that you step over when you cross the road they're those little dots that you you feel under your feet to register for people who are blind or with low vision that they're about to approach a road and we designed our own urban tactile indicators and they were really bright and colorful and we created an installation at the immigration museum and that was so much fun because we had people that were of low vision or blind actually assisting people to walk around this space in the courtyard of the immigration museum and just seeing little kids and older people learning how to hold a hand and guide someone along and think about what it's like to actually walk around the space from the perspective of someone who has low vision or blind was just fabulous. Yeah, it was great. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. And then how did you come to radio? How, how did the idea for the architects come up? And Well, that was actually begun by Stuart Harrison and Rory Hyde and Simon Knott and they'd been doing it for a number of years and in the meantime I was doing my own music show on PBS for a number of years and they invited me to join them and uh, 
that was, you know, it was actually quite a big transition for me because I was so used to jumping on air and putting on records and doing back announcements of the music. So I wasn't doing a lot of talking. So I had to learn how to talk about buildings and spaces, um, which was, you know, a great learning curve for me and it was a fantastic opportunity and I'm very grateful to Simon and Stuart and Rory for bringing me on the team and I went on to do that for another five years before we wrapped up the show and we were hoping people like yourself would fill the gap, which you now have here at Radio Carum. So that's great. Yeah, thank you. What were some of the like highlights from the show? Do you have a standout moment at all? I really, I've, I remember having a f- great conversation with uh, one of my favourite architects, Sir Peter Cook from Archie Graham and he's, an, he's a big superstar architect. He uh, is well known for a lot of his experimentations in the 1970s but he's still practising now and he's got a great practice. And he was just utterly generous. I mean he's a sir and he is very famous in the world of architecture but um, I just thought he was so wonderfully generous and great to talk to and we had some fantastic conversations about naughty spaces. Um, he's quite cheeky as yeah, well, isn't he? he's very cheeky. Yeah. I attended one of his lectures at the M Pavilion in Melbourne, yep. which was very fortunate to be there and yep. I thought he was the most whimsical character. Yeah, he is. He is. He's good value. Yeah. Oh, how, how lovely. Mm. I remember... While I was still a student, particularly in, in during my years of bachelor studies, your design studios were interested in the uh, surf culture, the coastal culture, the surf life-saving clubs as a typology. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about some of the ideas that were explored there um, because the he has a lot of listeners who live on the Long Beach communities. We love the beach. We love our life-saving clubs. And the city of Kingston is really actively investing in life-saving club renewal and redevelopment one by one up and down the coast here. Wonderful. Well, it really stems from an interest in culture and whether it's the culture of surfing or the culture of footy or whatever it is, I feel very connected to being an Australian and thinking about what it is that we do and all of those cultural activities that we take place in. So I did a few studios that were exploring the culture of surfing and Australians' love of water and swimming and the beach. I did my PhD on the on looking at the relationship between swimming pools and natural bodies of water. So there's always been an interest for me in thinking about how a building relates to its outside environment but also how it relates to culture and how buildings are enjoyed and occupied and how things like surfing and life-saving can inspire all sorts of new ways of thinking about architecture. And that was well ahead of the pool exhibition at the Australian Pavilion, which then came years later when we opened the, f- the first permanent Australian yes. Pavilion yes. in Venice yes. for the Venice Biennale, which is, for our listeners is every two years there's an alternating ex- exhibition international between art and architecture. 
And that first opening exhibition, I was very fortunate to actually be there in person oh, at the end of my productive wow. gap year. It was absolutely incredible. It was the pool. Yes. And they had an ankle deep wading pool within the pavilion and this reflection of Australian architecture representing pools. That's right. I mean, we do, I mean, just thinking about how, where our cities are located in Australia, they're all mostly on the edges near water. So we do have this strong connection to water and swimming and, you know, we take it for granted that we all learn to swim at a very young age but you go to other countries and you realise that's actually a very Australian thing and not all countries do this. So I think just having the weather and climate that we do um, gets us out enjoying the water a lot more and to think about how that might actually inspire an architecture um, that is located close to bodies of water um, was something I was exploring in those design studios. Was there at all, I'm curious, an architectural element or something that was spatially really identified as being critical to a successful life-saving club or a really great, really Australian pavilion? Well, there were a few different layers to it. I mean, one is to think about, okay, well, what is the relationship to the outside? Do you want this building to be a, a big sort of icon in, in itself or what is that connection to the outside? So I think that's the thing that a lot of students were thinking about is is it an object sort of plonked there um, that's quite separate from its surroundings or is it a little bit interconnected and integrate with those outside environments more. So that we, we do have a great history of pavilions and outdoor uh, swimming pools in Australia that students were looking at as well. There's a really awesome one in Brisbane called the Centenary Pools designed by James Birrell. Um, which is a very curvy building propped up and it's all, you know, there's, there's something sort of celebratory about architecture when you are designing it for life-saving or whatever it is. So I think that's something that a lot of the students were really trying to bring out in the building and, the, in, you know, in the colours and the materials and the form of it um, you know, some of them were looking at uh, <clears throat> really intricate analyses of waves and the movement of waves and how that might actually inform a building. Or it might be about thinking about the journey of how you actually enter the building and then whether or not it sort of takes you on a journey and then you spill out and end up and you get this beautiful um, view of the beach or, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can think about this kind of architecture. All the fun things that you could do while yeah. you're a student <laughs> and not constrained by gravity. Exactly. And all, all, those, all those really <laughs> exciting things. And whether or not the building should actually be located in the water as well was another one we thought about. Like a, like a pier almost. Yeah. Like the St Kilda Pier. That's right. Yeah. Is my guest a couple of weeks ago, Simona Castricum, described one of her early student projects where she took sine waves from a song she loved yes. and turned the yeah. sound wave in, into an architecture. As Beautiful. A, yeah, exactly. It's a breakthrough moment. Yeah. 
And then something I observed as I moved through my master's and came back from this grand tour was your research and your studio work moved towards connection with country and investigating designing with and for First Nations people. And I think you were the first academic to really boldly, bravely venture in that terrain because in architecture as a profession it was like scary and forbidden and we weren't sure what to do when it's not our place. This is something, a term I've appropriated from Chris the Tippett of On Being about living the questions. And I feel something we as a profession have been living the question on. But you've so bravely went there first as an academic if I'm not mistaken and aren't overly attributing well, there. Well, I don't, I can't speak about other universities, but probably one of the first, definitely the, one of the first at RMIT that. Uh, as a non-Indigenous as practitioner. As a non-Indigenous practitioner, that's right. And that really came about, I mean, as I said, I'm always thinking about what does it mean to be an Australian? And that really is what drives everything I do. So whether it's looking at a surf lifesaving club, whether it's designing a, pav- a footy pavilion or whether it's thinking about our First Nations people, it's very it's always connected to what does it mean to be an Australian and how might that play out architecturally. So in terms of the studios I've been exploring in relation to First Nations knowledges, uh, I think that really started to tick over in my brain way back in the early 90s when I was an architecture student. And when I was a student of our subject called Australian architecture, I started to think, well, why are we starting this course at the time of settlement what was architecture like pre-settlement? And that was something that just was left out of the curriculum. We always thought about architecture as being a post-settlement thing. Um, But actually now I think many of us realise that architecture has been on this country for, you know, over 65,000 years Um, But it's taken a long time for the profession to catch up and actually acknowledge the beautiful structures and the way that the landscape was reshaped. So that was really going over in my brain for quite a few years and it's been a long journey for me to think about how we might actually be able to rethink how we design in relation to place and country and We're all starting to understand as architects in Australia that we are all designing on unceded land. All land in Australia is Aboriginal land and we have over 250 language groups in this country. If you haven't checked out the IATSIS map, this will very clearly lay it all out. Um, And I thought, well, what does that mean as an architect? We, We were taught that we must be site-specific and that architecture must really pay attention to the site that it is designed and built on. Um, But actually the countries that we design on in Australia have been reworked and reshaped for a long time and we need to really start to think about what that means as architects. So... I teach with an architect called Stasinos Mansus. We've been teaching for a long time and we started to 
explore this in our design studios. Um, it was quite a challenging battle because a lot of people thought um, what is the place for a non-Indigenous architect to be exploring this? Should we be doing this? Is it our role to be doing this? We're not Aboriginal architects. Um, but we've come a long way since then and many architecture schools and many architects are really understanding that it's absolutely essential for us to start to think about Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous people and how that can really begin to reshape architecture within our cities and within our suburbs and all over this place we call Australia. As we keep saying on this show, it's actually compulsory now in public work. It is work. absolutely compulsory now. It's part of the reg architect's registration process. Um, architecture schools are now required to embed this in our education. Um, so I guess, yeah, it's something we've been thinking about for a number of years at, in the RMIT architecture I wonder in the, in the beginnings, it was definitely a very brave move. I wonder, was it frightening? It's quite a vulnerable well, step forward. It, it was a bit frightening because I think like many architects, we were worried about getting it wrong, making mistakes, um, thinking about what can be done and what can't be done. You know, can we share Aboriginal stories through architecture? What is the place for us to be doing this? How can we begin to think about a building in terms of Indigenous knowledges? Um, so we had to just go in there and be gutsy about it, be prepared to make mistakes along the way, which we certainly did. And we did that on our own for a few semesters and then we were really lucky that we were invited by an Indigenous elder, Uncle Leonard Clark, from the Western District in Framlingham to co-partner with him on a vision he has for a project at Framlingham. Um, and we've been working with Uncle Lenny ever since then and it's been so amazing because it's taught me how important the building of relationships is. And I think just to note that in this space, we speak a lot about Indigenous-led. Things need to be Indigenous-led. And what does that mean? And it really just simply means if we can build a relationship with a community or an elder and begin to understand what their needs are and let their needs actually drive a project. And that's quite different to how we usually operate in architecture where um, often we're used to sort of solving a problem or coming at things with our own idea. But we have to sort of firstly begin with making a relationship um, and then allowing the architecture to come out through that. Um, Uncle Lenny is an elder with the Koori Court um, in the Western District. So he has first-hand knowledge of how many people in his community in, end up in prison. So the statistics, as most of us know, are pretty grim in this country in terms of the over-incarceration of our First Nations people. And his, <coughs> his vision is to um, prevent crime and prevent his community and First Nations people around Australia 
from being incarcerated through a process of culture and healing through arts and music. So he wants to build a beautiful performing arts centre down on his land in Framlingham to bring in the community and build a strong community that provides life skills for the youth provides ongoing opportunities and our students have been working with him to think about what that might look like. What a wonderful project, Yeah, wonderful exploration. Yeah. And you get to do field work as well with the students. They spend time on country. Yes, yeah, so the students, we start off the semester on campus and we introduce them to uh, things like deep listening, which is really important when you're working with Indigenous people and giving them a very quick, brief, condensed history of Australia um, and the the brutal history that we have of colonisation. Um, and then we spend three days out with the community, which, you know, they are just so amazing and so welcoming. And we do a big cook-up, we sit around the fire and we have yarns and we walk around on site and it's just such a beautiful way to learn and think about a space and really get that deep knowledge of country through not just um, being in the place but having conversations and understanding the needs of the community through those few days. And then they go back to RMIT and develop their designs and then we invite Uncle Lenny and his mob to come back to RMIT and the students present their work back to him. And what a rapid growth opportunity for the students as well, particularly perhaps even international students might not know the truth well, of what Well, international happened. students are always very enthusiastic about undertaking such a design studio and um, Uncle Lenny gives every student his mobile number. He... He says that they are always welcome back. He actually, We actually had a student from Chicago come and do an exchange and undertake the studio and they've now become very good friends and he came back last year and went back and visited Uncle Lenny. So a lot of the students return and keep connected with the community there. So, you know, it's not just a lesson in architecture, it's a lesson in building relationships. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I'm jealous. I really, I am. I wish I had. I wish I had those design studio in such a caliber. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing, and you get to know the students really well, and they bond with each other. And um, now we're also working with Nawi Carolyn Briggs, who is a professor at RMIT. And she's, she's amazing. Bunwarong elder, and she has her own vision for designing a an indigenous cultural centre down in the Melbourne Arts Precinct as well. So it's nice for students to understand that country is not just out in regional areas but country is everywhere and Melbourne is country. It's on the lands of the Bunwurrung and the Woiwurrung. So to understand country in different contexts is super important. And that even urban landscapes. Even urban landscapes. And as Auntie Carolyn says, you know, we have lost a lot through colonisation 
Um, but how can we think about a future vision for Melbourne which is inclusive of Indigenous voices? How can I walk around Melbourne and begin to feel connected to my ancestors, feel connected to country and how might architecture be able to enable that to happen in a new way? So I think that's a really important lesson to think about how future architecture might actually begin to bring back country in a new and exciting way. And how do we get a, so much more authentic Australian architecture as a result? Exactly. Rather than trying to copy and paste a bit of old Europe. That's right. Yeah, really exactly. looking for what what is ours. It's What is ours? And we've been so lucky to be welcomed by so many of our First Nations people after all of the suffering they've had to endure over the last, you know, 200 plus years. Um, you know, it's awesome. I'm super excited about our future built environments and how they're going to really change around Australia. Me too. Yeah. Me too. That's really something that, that gives me hope. It's, I think it's a very, very exciting opportunity yeah. ahead for all designers and practitioners who are throwing the hat in the ring and are also brave to engage with really important context. Exactly. I wonder from those experiences of being on field work, on country, and the relationship building, that can be quite a profound experience for a lot of people and particularly interacting with country or the natural world in that way and learning to not separate yourself from it. Have there been any moments of awe or like revelations that have come out from, for students that something that's been a really special moment? Well, I think, I mean, I do a little quick recording with them all at the end of the trip and ask them about the experience and a lot of them say, you know, this is, they have learnt life life skills on this short three-day trip and the, un, the, the importance of caring for each other, which is something that they would not expect to learn in an architecture degree um, and that always, you know, brings tears to my eyes when I hear students talk about these things but also when you go down to Uncle Lenny's I mean he's such a kind and caring person but he has people at in his community that have had really hard lives they've been you know there's drug addictions there's suicide there's people that have been in jail so this is not a vision of Aboriginal Australia seen through rose-coloured glasses. This is a very real experience of contemporary uh, Aboriginal communities and how tough it is for many of our First Nations communities that, you know, live in poverty and have to get through some really tough things in life and work together to get through those things. Yeah. For many years now, really eminent, Melbourne-based architectural academics have been calling that our primary training should actually be in deep listening. And I think you found a way to do that in your studios. Yeah, we're very, we are very absolutely really lucky because you can read about all of this stuff but to actually go out there and be with the community is the best way to learn. It's the best way to learn about our First Nations people. It's the best way to learn about country. And, you know, country is not just about our surroundings, it's about people, it's about animals, it's about insects. and The stars. Really, it's about the stars. So um, it's just 
such a powerful way to learn that when you're actually out with your classmates, under the stars, by a fire, having conversations with the community. It's, yeah, it's pretty special. I'm really quite jealous now. <laughs> I wish I, wish I um, had the opportunity to take design studios mm. like that. But you're a very passionate advocate and that's really important, especially for us non-Indigenous practitioners who are working on being good and better allies. And you've volunteered a lot of your time for the Yes campaign at the moment. How, how's that been going? How's that experience been for you? Yes. Well, I'm doing it on one level, two levels within my community, within the McNamara seat where I live and also within the space of the university. So a few weeks ago I found out that the 20 to 30-year-olds within our uh community in Australia are the biggest cohort of the undecided voters of the referendum, which was a surprise to me. And the reason being that, you know, when when you're in your 20s, you're busy out partying or studying and you're not necessarily engaged or reading papers or listening to the radio or the news. So um, we have done a lot to try and educate the students that the referendum's coming up, go out, find out. If you don't know, find out, ask questions and encourage respectful debates, which is really the position of RMIT as a university to um, just make sure we have respectful conversations and find out and learn about the referendum. So one component of my campaigning is to simply educate students about what's going on, that there's a referendum coming up on the 14th of October and to find out about it and decide for themselves. Um, I'm very out there with my yes vote. I walk around with my little I'm voting yes badge and I've made it pretty clear that our Nagulu uh committee at RMIT is supporting the yes vote um, but ultimately it's up to students how they want to decide. So that's one aspect in terms of educating community. The other is I've signed up with my seat, the McNamara seat and like many people around Australia I'm out on the streets handing out brochures and information and having conversations which has been great. Uh, a lot of community members are door knocking, which I'll probably be doing on the weekend as well. Uh, my partner's currently doing phone banking. So it's been, you know, really, really interesting process just to get out there and have conversations with people. And there are a lot of people who aren't sure about it or don't understand what it's about. And just to be able to explain to them that it's actually a very... Very simple thing that we are being asked to do. It's just an advisory body. One is to firstly acknowledge our First Nations people in our constitution and the second is to say yes to having an advisory body that will be constituted of First Nations people in Australia that will be able to provide advice to the government on issues that impact and affect them. And I think, you know, in terms of architecture, I mean, there are some pretty powerful examples of how our governments have made some pretty bad 
decisions in the pa- in the past because they haven't had the conversation with our First Nations people. So one example is um, there was a housing project built in a remote community in the Northern Territory and, um, you know, a lot of money was spent. It was a beautiful facility that the government had invested in. You know, a, a year down the track, the government went back and had discovered that the buildings had all been demolished. And the reason the community demolished them was because the government had badly cited them on sacred burial sites. So this was pretty devastating to the community. So it's things like that that get you thinking, wow, you know, a lot of money has been wasted. Taxpayers' money has been wasted because those conversations haven't been had at the outset. So the idea is for an advisory body who can actually just sit and have conversations, you know, it might be four times a year with the government about issues that are specific to their community um, because at the end of the day they understand what will benefit their communities more than anyone else. Um, and it's, it's that simple. So for me, it's an absolute no-brainer to put a yes in the box on October the 14th. Absolutely. For me too, of course, definitely voting yes. And I can just imagine how much easier this will make our jobs as practitioners to have that streamline of information, to have that touch point for government and therefore government departments that are basically my client exactly to work with and deliver better outcomes that's right because also not knowing who the right groups are to speak to sends us in circles exactly and that's a waste of everybody's time and money that's right that's right so i think for listeners that are concerned about oh no it's an extra layer of bureaucracy i'd say that it's going to make my job a lot easier it it definitely is going to actually remove bureaucratic papers in the stack for sure for sure. And I think, I mean, I, I'm guessing the government's going to save a lot of money through this process um, because they'll be better informed on working on projects um, that will positively benefit Aboriginal communities. That is without a doubt. I mean, yeah. Even architecturally, yeah. the, the housing projects, for example, are going to be more appropriate. That's right. And that, that's the same across health and justice. Absolutely. And all, Absolutely. P- all public infrastructure. Exactly. So the, the benefits and the flow-on effects, I think, are going to be very tangible and very quick return That's with, right. within a matter of years. Yeah, for sure. It takes, as we've discussed on this show with, with listeners, it takes years to procure a building to design, document, deliver on site, but uh, that, that'll be much quicker than the process that we as a nation, as society, have gone on to get to the point that we have this referendum now. Yes. And we can't squander it yes, either. Yes, yes. There's no other chance. No, we can't. And uh, I've been, I don't know if anyone follows Senator Briggs on social media, but if you don't, he is quite powerful in explaining the power of the upcoming referendum and the importance of it to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. Um, And he says, you know, we're already in a no place. So... Um, we need this referendum to go forward. We need people to vote yes. And a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, is it maybe it's not doing enough. And I think 
this is a very powerful and important move forward and it won't be the end point. It won't stop on October the 15th. Um, regardless of what the outcome is. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning and I think, you know, the great thing is it has opened up the conversation to people. Not all all those conversations are good ones and there's a lot of misinformation out there as we know. But it's great to see that Australians are thinking about our First Nations people who are here for many thousands of years and how important it is as a nation to grow um, and the world to actually is celebrate that. I mean, I feel really lucky and proud to be living on, a, on, on this place where we have so much culture and knowledge. I think it's just awesome. There's so. so much opportunity to learn from and, and grow in our civic discourse and everything we produce collectively Absolutely. as a country. Yeah. But I'm also super mindful of the fact that the rest of the world is watching us. Like You mentioned Senator Briggs. He recently got reshared by some massive American celebrity and because I don't know pop culture at all, the name is, escapes me. But <laughs> the world is watching. America is watching. Mean, it would be pretty embarrassing if it doesn't get through. We, I think that's one thing. I mean, not that we do this for these reasons, but I think the world is looking down. I've, I've got... Um, relations in California who've been hearing about it and I think it's you know pretty international spotlight on Australia at the moment to prove that we are not a racist country and that we do value and respect our First Nations voices and we are respectful of those voices and that we are proud to be diverse Um, and you know I, I think we all need to be respectful of all of our cultures and I, you know, I love being in a place where we have so many ethnicities and people who've come from all over the world. So it's very much about, again, relationships and respect. And plenty of countries, because we love precedent in Australia, someone else has to do it first, plenty of countries already have constitutional recognition with their First Nations people. Plenty also have treaties Canada, Norway, New Zealand, the list goes on and decades before us. And it's a very small gesture for us and it's so easy for us to just write yes in the box Um, and it's only going to have a positive impact on all of us at the end of the day. If we have a country that can be proud of our First Nations people, to be able to respect them, to listen to to the needs of their communities is only going to be a a, a great thing for this nation. And perhaps also a chance to resolve all those funny feelings we have about the topic because as non-Indigenous practitioners, we definitely went into the space to begin with a bit of fear and trepidation. Fear, inertia, we didn't know what to do so we didn't do anything for a long time. Um, so that was part of my motivation. We have to actually just get on with it and do it. Um, and I feel like we are growing as a country. I think um, I heard uh, – actually, Uncle Lenny had a fantastic Yes concert down at his property on Friday and there were some great people performing, including Shane Howard of Goanna and – He said, you know, we are in a very different space to when he was 
thinking about this and putting out music in the 1980s, which was very much about supporting Aboriginal people in Australia. So it, it was really nice to hear that, to hear that actually we are growing and we are thinking about these things and recognising the value of, uh, of appreciating the many different cultures um, that exist across Aboriginal Australia, the many different languages. And, you know, I, I mean, I remember when I went to school, I had zero knowledge that there were so many languages, so many Indigenous languages. Oh, yeah, me too. They didn't yeah. teach that in my day. I went to a school called Burundara and we were told that that meant shady place in Aboriginal. So it was like, oh, okay, there's one Aboriginal language. So I think we are, I think our, our school kids are learning a lot more. My girls go to a school where they get up and the grade fives and sixes do their own acknowledgements every assembly. They sing in Bunwurong language. Um, so I'm hoping we're going to have a really positive outcome and that, yes, makes it over the line. We've had a text message come in. Hopefully you can answer it before I ask my last question and wrap up a bit later. Is regarding the demolition case, why a simple planning permit process needs a voice-like body? Why a simple planning process like voice? Needs why a simple planning process needs a voice-like body? A lot of these um, housing projects didn't require your standard planning permits in regional and outback Victoria. Um, they were government initiatives. Which are exempt from planning. Which are exempt from planning, yeah. That's a simple answer to that question. I, I think the texter is also wondering how come that knowledge about the sacred burial ground or any of these other factors that should have affected planning wasn't something go the government knew about. Well, because they didn't have a, an authority or body in which to engage with and a lot of decisions were being made in parliament without those conversations. So it's, you know, it's it's pretty obvious and <laughs> straightforward when you think about it like that. Just to actually have the conversation with the community you're building with, many of these communities aren't English-speaking either. So... Um, unlike in Victoria, but um, how it will work is there will be an, a, you know a, a body of elected First Nations people that will actually go and speak with communities so they will actually understand, have a much better, closer relationship to understanding what the community needs and then report that back to government. So why we haven't had this already, I mean, when you think about examples like that, you think, you know, it's an absolute no-brainer to go and speak to a community about what they need. The texter has followed up and said that Aboriginal heritage overlays already exist, but you've got to do a conservation heritage management plan for that to exist. Yeah. And if there's no way to engage with communities. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's a pretty new thing as well like I think that's changed a lot in architecture we're now having to undertake archaeological reports I mean seeing all the work done in Melbourne City for our new underground rail 
Um, there's been all sorts of artefacts have been uncovered through that process. Um, but yes, so it's quite astonishing how many bad mistakes have taken place over the years. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And also having a body that can provide better advice on how to deal with those artefacts, for example. Exactly. At a more legislative level. Yeah. Why do you think is the main reason that uh, we need the constitutional change also from a constitutional perspective? So the thinking behind it is, uh, and this comes from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, is well, over the years there have been a number of Aboriginal advisory bodies and I think the last one was ATSIC. And what happened was because they weren't in the constitution, we'd get governments coming in and they would dissolve the body and then a new one would come about. And so we really needed in the constitution so that, that it's an ongoing one that can't be dismantled by an upcoming government and that it's always there and that we are always required to listen to our First Nations people. And yeah. a lot of those bodies weren't terribly functional or the funding wasn't quite right. Exactly. And yeah. this is a way to actually prevent those profligate failures. That's right, exactly. It's actually optimising taxpayer money. Yeah. And I think, you know, our listeners should realise this has come from our First Nations people. This is not a plan that has been devised by non-Indigenous politicians. It's This is what they would like. Um, not not all First Nations people, but 80% are on board with this um, and it's been planned to ensure that that communication and ongoing conversations are always there and whether it's the Labor Party or the Coalition or whoever's in power will always have the opportunity to listen. And, you know, they, they this authority won't have any power to actually make changes. It's really about informing the government and the government will actually ultimately have the final say in any decisions that are being made. And creating a record within the public service. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because that yeah. data is actually very hard for researchers to access even. Yeah. And all these reports, they're hidden in archives in Canberra. Yeah, yeah. that's right. As I discovered through my own master's thesis yeah. research. There you go. Some some things are very, very hard to uncover, but mm -hmm. we knew we needed to do this at the very least in the 80s. Yeah. So I'm mindful of the time I want to ask my last question, mm -hmm. which is what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Well, I think thinking about the, the, the yes vote and the upcoming referendum, I think what gives me hope is that I have really noticed architects from all over Australia really coming on board with our First Nations people and cultures and to see our students also being super excited to learn about our history in Australia and our ongoing living cultures of First Nations people gives me hope that we are moving to a better, more promising future and that our built environments are going to start to reflect this in a really exciting way that celebrates these beautiful cultures. And is more inclusive because Australia is very rich and diverse. 
That's really awesome. I think I'd agree with that really in the, in the same ways of the, the things that give me hope too. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about our, our time at the moment that we're living through? I, I think um, it is a tricky one because of social media and the way we're receiving news now. It's a different territory. So I just encourage people to go out there and become informed from reputable sources and have conversations and not spiral down into some of the awful stuff out there on social media. There's deliberate disinformation. There is. And that's really an affront to our democracy. Yeah. Yes. You know what blew my mind? That the pamphlets that have come to every single letterbox in this country from the Australian Electoral Commission have no obligation to be factually correct. No, and RMIT fact check and the guard actually the Guardian newspaper did quite a bit of analysis and um, pointed out all the errors that were on that. So yes, take note and inform yourself. Um, you know, you don't have to have a university degree to understand this is a pretty straightforward thing that you're being asked to do is to one, recognise our First Nations people in the constitution and to two, to, to enable a, a body to inform the government about these issues. It's so simple. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, we still have uh, about a week and a half to continue the conversation and I hope listeners will continue listening and learning. Go and out and speak to your neighbours, speak yeah. to your cousins and uncles and aunties and yeah, keep those conversations going. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Thank Christine. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Uh, hello, this is Kieran Carroll, uh, the playwright from Edith Vale, and you're on Radio Carrum, a great station that gives many, many voices a chance across the city of Kingston. Go Radio Carrum!